So if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn back to the passage of Scripture that we read earlier that's found in Mark chapter 5 as we come to look at the healing of this demoniac man. It's often called, he's often called the Gadarene demoniac. And I'm sure it's a passage that you're all very well aware of. It's very well known. But God willing, as we look at this passage, I hope that there will be some new details and we will be reminded of old truths and what Christ has done for us um, in it as we look at the example of this man. Um, it's obviously a miracle. It was supernatural. And it's one of the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performed whilst here on earth. Um, it's found... There's a parallel passage found in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 8 as well. And for some people, there are slight differences as you read these versions. Um, the place name differs. Um, in Matthew, it's called the place of the Gerasenes. Um, that's probably why I chose Mark, because I can hardly pronounce that word. But each of the authors of these gospel books, as they wrote about this miracle, there were the same basic facts... But there's also unique observations in each one of them and applications that the author draws from this miracle. And I will think of it like this. Just as you might expect the Daily Telegraph and the Guardian, when both writing about the Conservative Party, to cover the same basic facts but have different applications and maybe write about different things as they analyse it in a different matter, it's what we find here as we look at this miracle the three gospel accounts all have different focuses. So Matthew, his main purpose as he looked at this miracle was to focus on the sovereignty of God over all things, how he can do anything. And Matthew tells us there were two men here, whereas in this account you would believe there was only one. But Matthew was focusing on God's sovereignty to cast out the evil spirits. Mark and Luke also focus on this. But they choose more to focus on this one man, and particularly at the end, this one man who was left behind to do as Christ commanded to him and to witness to all those in his region. And so it is Mark's account that we're going to be looking at this morning, but I will make reference to the other uh, two accounts at times. And one of the ways that Mark helps to point his readers to who the Lord Jesus Christ is to discover that he is the Son of God is by writing about the miracles that he did. These were indeed one of the witnesses that God gave his son uh, to perform. At the end of the previous chapter, I don't think it was that long ago, that um, Ben Hutton spoke on this, how Christ performed a miracle and demonstrated his power over nature. Um, we're told that um, the disciples and he were caught in a fist on, on a boat and that Christ stilled it with three simple words. Peace, be still. And we're told the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then we move on to chapter 5, where we have the healing of the Gadarene demoniac. And this is demonstrating to us Christ's supreme power over the spiritual realm. Not only is he in control over nature, he's in control of the spiritual realm. And then if you read beyond verse 20 into verse 21, we see that Christ has been given the power of life that he can raise those from the dead up to life. And it's Christ's power of the spiritual realm that's going to be our focus today in chapter 5. This is his ability to liberate people from the powers of darkness, from the grasp of Satan. And if you like a theme or the big idea of our sermon today, it's 
the liberation of Christ. And to help us understanding later on, it's important just to take a little bit of time to set the scene. The place of the Gadarenes that we read about was an area to the east of Lake Galilee. It was on the opposite side of the lake to Capernaum where the Lord Jesus Christ spent much of his ministry. If you'd like to think of it like this, Capernaum was at 11 o'clock on the clock and um, the place of the Gadarenes was at 5 o'clock. It was a Gentile region and it was a region that the Lord had instructed his disciples to get into a boat from Capernaum and row across there. And because it was a Gentile region, that is why we find this massive herd of pigs. Um, I'm sure you're all aware that pigs were unclean to the Jews. You wouldn't have found any pigs in the area. But that is why we find this large herd of pigs that were being looked after by some laborers. It's also worth thinking as well that these pigs, it wasn't just one man who had a massive farm with 2,000 pigs. These would have been the swine of many people. Sort of the local inhabitants, all their swine would have been together just like the flocks of sheep were all together under one shepherd. So these pigs would have been many people's pigs being looked after by some herdsmen who were employed to keep them clean, to move them around and to find them food. And so having set that scene, I'd like to look at this chapter. I've got four points. We're going to start by looking at the person, the plague, the peace and then the pleading. And we start by looking at the person who's introduced to us, this gathering demoniac, um, found from verses 2 to 5. We read this, And when he, that is Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains... Um, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces neither could anyone tame him and always day and night he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with tombs this is the man that confronted the Lord Jesus Christ as soon as he got out of the boat we don't know his name but what we do know is that he was an outcast he had been outcast from his society and his community but that wouldn't have always been the case. Once upon a time, he would have been raised amongst people. He would have been obviously born into a family, uh, raised, taken part in his community. But at some point in his life, he had become under the possession of demons. Whether willingly or unwillingly, we don't know. But this had profoundly changed him. And I don't want to go into the study of demonology. It's a massive subject. That's not the purpose of this sermon, but what we need to understand is that demons are spirits and that they are under the leadership of the devil. And demon possession occurs when these evil spirits enter into a person's body and then they take control of it. And this can manifest itself in many different ways. It seems that in the times of Christ there were many people who were demon-possessed and he healed many of them. But they all had this thing in common that the demons controlled their body. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we can see one example of our Lord healing another person who was demon-possessed. And this demon had caused this man to be both mute and blind. We see one who was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both saw and spoke. That was this man. But in the case of this 
Gadarene demoniac. I think even by levels of demon possession, the control which the demons had over his body was extreme. He possessed a superhuman, a supernatural strength that enabled him to break these chains apart. These demons controlled his dialogue, the way he spoke, the cries that he uttered. When we see about him speaking um, from verse 7 onwards, it's actually the demons speaking through him, using his mouth as a portal to speak. And we also understand that the people of the area had tried to control this man. They'd done their best to restrain him, to help him from himself, and to stop him disrupting their community and distressing them with his cries and self-harming. And that had all failed. So he'd been chucked out into the tombs like a diseased animal. And demon possession is always destructive. We thank God that in his grace and his mercy, it's not commonplace in our society. There is definitely still cases of demon possession today, and it does seem to occur more so in some parts of the world than others. But what is true, even if the vast majority of people are not demon-possessed, is that this does not mean Satan has no influence over our lives. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 to 9, when the Lord Jesus Christ was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan said this to him, the devil took him up, Matthew 4, verse 8, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And he wasn't lying when he said this to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind is born into sin, born into darkness, under the rule of the devil. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, whose spirit now works in the sons of disobedience. And at this very moment in time, there are countless millions of people in this world, and perhaps there are some sat amongst us this morning, who are the sons of disobedience, whose lives are controlled by the devil. And although such a person, it might not be obvious to see by their outward actions, and they might not actively worship Satan in any rituals, the Bible teaches us that all those who are outside of God's kingdoms, are under the influence of the devil. When the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking or rebuking the Pharisees, he said this to them in John chapter 8, verse 44. He said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And those whose lives are controlled by Satan, as we see from the example of this poor Gadarene demoniac, are under the influence of a very cruel master. Perhaps it's one of the greatest deceptions that the devil has is that the life he offers people is easy and a good life. Now, I do feel it's important to explain this application because quite obviously many people who don't believe in God do not have terrible lives full of suffering like this man did. But 
it was not so long ago that Ian did Psalm 73 with us, and the Psalms observed the wicked seemed to live really quite pleasant, easy lives while the righteous suffered. But it was in verse 19 of that Psalm that he suddenly recalled as he went into the temple of God um, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terror. And that is the case for many people whose lives are outside of God. There are many happy smiles, there are many facades put up today, many pictures on social media of people giving out this happy and this good impression. But behind all this, there are very many unhappy lives. You see, the voice of Satan causes people to obsess and to worry. Obsess that they haven't got enough. Obsess what they, they haven't got what everyone else has. Worry about will they keep hold of it. Worry about the future. And that confuses people. It terrorizes them as they live. And I think it's not so hard for me to demonstrate that it's quite easily seen in our modern society. This Gadarene man was found in solitude on his own in a place of great darkness. And Satan's rule in people's lives pushes others into such circumstances. Now, I'm not going to sort of lecture about the places of great darkness that we find in our society today. It seems most of them are shut at the moment anyhow. But there are obvious cases where people are in awful, unnatural situations on the streets, living in doorways, or in slums, um, because they are addicted to certain things. And we're hearing an awful lot, aren't we, about mental unhappiness at the moment, how people are lonely, they're surrounded by so many people, it's so easy to speak, and yet there's this great confusion they have in their lives. They don't know what their purpose is. There's a terror about the future. Uh, for those of you who saw the football yesterday and Christian Eriksen's sad collapse on the pitch, people were moved like they never moved before as they suddenly realised the impact of what death can have. What's next? Um, we have obsessions and addictions. There's the functioning alcoholic, the man who goes to work and might be a brilliant lawyer and goes home and is an alcoholic. There's deep-rooted unhappiness and unfulfilled emptiness in many people's lives. And this is what those who are under the devil suffer. Loneliness, isolation, unspoken problems, and deep unhappiness. And this is all what we found in this man, albeit in a lot more extreme and obvious situation. But let us move on to our second point, and that is looking at the plague of demons which possessed him. We move, as it were, from the physical realm, the body, into the spiritual realm, which, as the disciples and those who watched on would have seen. And we read that the demons drove this man to Christ and then spoke to Christ through him, verse 6 to 10. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirits. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. As soon as this man saw Christ, without introduction, he charged down and he ran and worshipped him and confronted the Lord Jesus. When you think about it, one might expect that someone who is the exact opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ would cower in silence, perhaps hide amongst the tombs. It's a very easy hiding place, isn't it, amongst gravestones or in the caves that were there. 
as the Son of Righteousness drew near. But these demons were told it was their desire to seek out Christ and to confront him. And by this physical picture that we are given, we are given an example of the spiritual warfare that is constantly raging on in the heavenly realms, the things that we don't see, the forces of light and the forces of darkness being confronted by each other. Um, Just as we read of Michael the archangel contending, um, being held up by the forces of evil, this is what's happening in that unseen realm all the time. Peter, as he speaks to the early church, reminds them that Satan is alive. He is very much active and at work today, seeking to destroy lives. Your adversary, the devil, he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is not passive. He is aggressive and confrontational. But we do have a point that gives us great strength as Christians, and it's this. The believer knows it, and the devil also acknowledges it, that he is a defeated foe, that when confronted by Christ, there is nothing he can do but obey. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, we read this. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. These demons knew it. The power of darkness knows it, that one day they're all going to be utterly destroyed. They're going to be bound up and thrown into the bottomless pit forevermore to share that terrible fate that all who do not know God as their Lord and Saviour will also share. Their doom is certain. Just like a man perhaps with his neck placed under a guillotine, there's no deliverance. They know that it will happen. They don't know at what moment, but at some point in time, they are be delivered to the destruction. And that moment of time is in the Lord's hands. John 5.22 says, The Father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the Son. And as the demons saw the Son, they feared that they were about to be cast into destruction. And they pleaded with him to be left alone. Verse 7, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And then in verse 10, they asked to be left alone. Even though these demons were great in number, when they were asked their name, they said, our name is Legion. And that's after the Roman Legion, which would have consisted of 6,000 people. And if you saw a Roman Legion in your days, it probably meant your country was about to be taken over. They were fearsome, they were terrible, and destroyed all in their path. So even though these demons were great in number, even though they sought to intimidate and cower the Son of God, it gave them no advantage. They couldn't change what was about to occur. And actually, in some way, confrontation was their only option because it was impossible to run away from God. And one day, whether or not we like it, we will all have to face this same judgment of God that the demons faced to hear our eternal fate. And strength in numbers, being on that broad road to destruction, as the Bible puts it, unlike in politics and the things of this world, it will have absolutely no influence on God's actions. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad.
it's worth noting too, isn't it, that these demons were not atheists. The devil is not an atheist. They ran and worshipped Jesus. They acknowledged who he was, the son of the most high God. And there are many people today who are so proud of their atheism. They're so proud of the facts that uh, they have explained away all these spiritual things, that uh, they're so proud, in fact, that they can openly mock those who believe in God and those things of the spiritual realm. And these people, they take so much pride in their own great intellect, their own understanding, that they can dismiss all the words of Scripture and the weight of evidence about who Jesus is. Well, Psalm 14 tells us that these people are fools. They haven't considered the evidence because they do not heed the truth. The devil who hates God, who would love to do away with God, he acknowledges that there is a God. He acknowledges that he is over all things. And so for atheists, they are just fools who do not understand these things. We can also equally deduce from this portion of scripture that acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour and being happy to believe that he exists does not mean that you are a saved believer. We can think elsewhere in Scripture of Judas. He kissed the Son of God and called him Master or Teacher. Yet we're told that he was the son of perdition. And it's probably some of the most difficult and fearful words found in Scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 22, as the Lord teaches, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice you who practice lawlessness. Being freed from our sins, being liberated from our sins and the actions of our sins is not just found in believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than that. It's by trusting that he is willing, he is able, and he has the power to do what he says he is able to do and that he can forgive us our sins. Going to church, it's saying that there is a God Um, believing in all these Bible stories is not enough unless you have that personal saving relationship with him found through believing in his words and relying upon him. It's that desire that you can have to do righteous which he gives us. And Christ does have this power. He has this power to free us from our sins. He is willing and he is able to help give us this peace which this man so desperately wanted. And our third point, the peace that Christ gives, or the power to liberate, maybe, can very well be seen from verse 11 through to 15. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirit went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down to a steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. We established, didn't we, at the beginning that this was a Gentile country. 
And there were these domesticated pigs nearby. And the demons saw these pigs. And so they pleaded with the Lord Jesus Christ to let them enter into the swine. Because demonic spirits need a host body to be attached to. And it wasn't yet time for these evil spirits to be destroyed. Christ was only going to drive them out and defeat them at this moment. And so he gave them permission to enter into the pigs. And in verse 13, when they did, we see that they entered into the pigs, and these pigs, in uncontrolled and destructive frenzy, charged over a cliff. And without exception, they all drowned in the sea. And those who witnessed this destruction were so terrified they ran away. And it's by this dramatic visual picture we see once again the strength of the enemy of souls that we are dealing with. And for those who are believers, we also see what we have actually been freed from, that terrible power that was once within us. I'm going to maybe just go on a bit of a sidetrack here, but we're living in an age, aren't we, where people are more concerned about the lives of animals than humans, or so it seems. Um, You'll often see our nation referred to as a nation of animal lovers. The RSPCA is the most bequeathed charity to in people's wills. And there's a collective pride in this, and to some certain degree, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, Even though there is often deafening silence on destruction of human lives and euthanasia and so on and so forth. And many people, when they read this, and read of the destruction of 2,000 pigs... They use it as an avenue of attack. Well, if Christ is willing to kill all these pigs, then Christianity is not worth looking at. He's a cruel God. He's hidden it quite well in the New Testament, but this shows how vindictive he actually is. To such accusations, let us just remember and point out to certain people that it wasn't Christ who sent them into the pigs. It wasn't his idea. It was the demon suggestions. They wanted to enter into these pigs. Christ just gave them permission. He never came up with the idea. It's the nature of evil to drag as much of God's creation into destruction with them, to wreck his creation. And although these demons, they were defeated, as we see in this chaos and this destruction of the pigs, we must take heed that they are still dangerous, even in their sort of death row, as it were. And Satan can still wreak much havoc and danger in such situations. Adam's first sin had this effect on the whole world. Death and destruction entered into every aspect of creation. So, the Lord Jesus Christ was not responsible for this. He just gave permission for Satan to have free realm. Just as he did with Job, he allowed Job to be plagued, even though he was not author of such things. We must remember that Christ does not revel in destruction and pointless bloodshed. We are also told that he's willing none should perish but everyone, he wishes that everyone comes to repentance. Christ is open and willing to all people to be saved. But moving back from this sidetrack, because it can become very easy, can't it, to focus on the animals, let's move back to this man. Because we see, as soon as the demons had departed from him, he was to be found in an entirely different state, wasn't he? He was to be found sitting, verse 15, sitting and clothed, and in his right mind, at the feet of Jesus. And how his life had changed from the man we first read about at the beginning. He'd gone from chaos, misery, nakedness, to peace by just a few words. 
by the permission of Christ. The evil spirits had gone from out of him. And what Christ had done in his life was something that was far beyond human ability. He'd performed a work of mercy, a work of great power, a freeing effect, a liberating effect from this man in darkness. In fact, Christ had done what the people of this region had been trying to do for ages. He'd he'd given this man peace, he'd restrained him, he'd taken all the forces of evil out of him. The world's methods have failed, whereas Christ had triumphed over these demons. And a picture of this man's spiritual state was now seen in how he lived. He was no wonder wandering around the tombs, these places of great uncleanness, in distress. He was just found sitting at the feet of Jesus. And not only had his body been healed, but there was a desire amongst him to be with Christ. He had had a spiritual awakening. This man's soul had been changed. He wanted to be with Christ now. Far from hating him and asking him to flee, he delighted to be in his presence, to be under his teachings. And this is what happens when the liberating power of God comes into a person's life. He changes the outer person and he changes the inner person. Romans chapter 6, when Paul's speaking about um, Christian living, he says we're now dead to sin and alive to God. We've been set free from our sin and we're now slaves to righteousness. This man was now a slave to a new master, a master who loved him, a master who cared for him and a master who only desired the best for him. Can you see the massive difference there is between those who are under Satan, those who are obsessed and worry, who are confused and living lives in terror, to the picture we have of this man living under the fruit of God's spirits, the joy he had, the peace that was there, the understanding and the love that Christ demonstrates. God's voice is entirely different from that of the devil. He soothes a person. He gives them a comfort and a calm. He awakens spiritual understandings and gives them a new outlook in life. This man didn't desire to cut himself anymore, to harm himself or to scare others. He was there in his clothes, listening to Jesus. It is worth obviously pointing out that this man would still have the scars on his body from cutting himself. His old life would have been visible on him. There were still repercussions of what had happened in the past. He couldn't divorce himself, he couldn't somehow just chop off those previous years of his life and pretend they'd never happened. But although the old life was a thing of the past, you could now see that he enjoyed a new life with his saviour, a life of peace and joy. And such a transformation caused two reactions amongst the people who uh, who were there and this man himself. And this is our fourth point. Both of them ended up pleading with Christ. And I'd like to um, look at their pleadings as we look at the transformation that had happened in this person's life. It hadn't gone unnoticed. And the Gadarene people in verses 16 and 7, when they came and saw who it... And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demons-obsessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Christ to depart from their region... These people came along and they were astonished by what they saw. They had an eyewitness account of what had happened and they saw the evidence of what had happened. 
And so they came and begged Christ to leave and leave their region and get back in the boat and go. This isn't the reaction we would expect, is it? They'd done their best to control this man and had failed. This stranger had come on and he succeeded in everything they'd failed. Surely there was more to him. Christ had only been in their region for a very short time. And he'd done so much good in that tiny amount of time. He'd healed this man who terrorised their community. And he could do so much more good. And yet they asked him to leave. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 24, um, Matthew records, after Jesus had um, done many great things, that Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. News about Christ's works had spread through a great region. He was very well known by this time. He'd done so much good for many communities. If they'd heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and his fame in Syria, as Matthew tells us, then these Gadarene people on just the opposite side of Lake Galilee, which is a very small lake, would surely have heard about Christ, about this man who had come and was doing the impossible and healing many, about his willingness to heal all those who came to him. And still their response was to drive him out, to ask him to depart. And many people call this the horror of answered prayer. Christ did exactly as they asked him to do, as they pleaded with him. But I think as we look at their reaction, we need to see why it was like this. And Romans 8 verse 7 gives us the root cause of this reaction. The carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. When the natural man is confronted by the things of God, the things of light, they prefer to ignore all the evidence that's laid before them and the repercussions of what they have seen. They choose not to confront these issues and they want to continue in their life as it always has been. They do not understand. The reaction of the people, it wasn't just one or two people either. Luke, in his account, tells us that the whole multitude of the surrounding region came out. This wasn't one or two people speaking out of turn. This was the whole area. They considered the loss of their livelihood. Many of their fortunes and perhaps their futures were in these pigs. And the more they thought on what Christ had done and what they could lose, Luke tells us the more they feared further losses. And Job in Job chapter 21, as he speaks of the unrighteous, in verse 14 to 16, Job says this, They say to God, Depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hands. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. As these people reflected on what Christ had done and what had happened, the sad thing is they viewed themselves as the great losers in life by Christ's visit. They'd lost their earthly riches, the things that they put their trust in. 
the things that they relied on, the things that they actually took pleasure in, seeing their money before them. Because they were spiritually blind, they had no consideration for their soul and for the things of God. Their eyes were just fixed on this earthly possessions. And is this true of anyone in here today, that you love the things of this world more than you love the things of God? You pride and put, um, you put your possessions above spiritual healing and spiritual peace. I was really taken with Jonathan Edwards' um, analysis on this. He had a really snappy title. He said, the Gadarenes love their swine. And that was it. They loved their animals, these pigs which were unclean, that lived in the muck and the mire. These pigs that were incapable of doing anything once the demons possessed them and charged into the cliff. They couldn't save themselves. They had no worth about themselves. These Gadarene people loved their swines more than Christ. They loved the passing and temporary things of the world. And they were just scared of what future costs would be involved if Christ stayed any longer. So they pleaded with him to get out of their lives. The cost of Christ can often be at the expense of earthly treasures. And although he promises that his burden is light and his yoke is easy, there are certain unclean things that have to be taken out of our lives. Certain idols have to be cut out. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 discovered this when Christ told him that he must sell all before he could follow him. He couldn't do it because he loved his swine or his money more. And believers are not immune to this tension either. There's this constant tension, isn't there, between the things of this world, what we have, our possessions, what God enables us to have, and our spiritual calling. Work, possessions, family, wealth, entertainment, they all vie to compete with Christ for our attention. And sometimes they succeed in driving him out, so we divorce ourselves from him. And although these gathering people, they'd made their desire very clear that they wished to continue in the same path and to limit Christ's glory and what he had done and to count it as nothing, the Lord was still very merciful to these people, wasn't he? Verses 18 to 20, we see his compassion really for them. And when Christ got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. This one man came to Jesus. He pleaded. He wanted to stay with Jesus, but the Lord had greater plans for him. The Lord had let the demon speak to testify who he was to these people. And now he let this man stay behind and speak and testify that he was the Lord God. This man's freedom from his sins, the sins that kept him in bondage, was witnessed by many. And he could, by his testimony, tell them what Christ was willing to do with them. And I'd like to just finish with this last and very simple thought. This man didn't have any great knowledge. He wasn't like the Apostle Paul. He hadn't been to big schools and sat under the best teachers. He didn't know a lot spiritually, did he? In fact, all he actually had was a very simple testimony and the evidence of his life about what Christ can do in people and actually what the devil is like as a master. 
He had this simple testimony about the new way of life that Christ can bring to people. But this was enough for Christ to tell him to go and witness to this huge region. And if we are saved, then our testimony, no matter how simple it is, no matter how run-of-the-mill you might call it, is enough for us to go and witness to those around us about the grace of God and what he can do in our lives. And so we see from this man his peace, the peace that Christ can bring, the power uh, that Christ has, the freedom that he can give those from the devil. And let us remember that those who are not yet saved are still walking in these paths of darkness. And let it give us a new emphasis, a new desire to go and witness to those around us what Christ can do in our lives.